As you can all see this morning, we're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the next passage in Matthew 6, and that's verses 19 through 21. You recall that in uh, trying to teach the difference between the kind of righteousness that those who are members of Christ's kingdom possess and the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which consisted in a great deal of hypocrisy and appearing to be righteous when inwardly they really weren't, uh, Jesus gave us a few examples about how they prayed to be seen by men, they gave to be seen by men, they fasted to be seen by men, and in doing so, they were seeking, they were seeking earthly reward rather than heavenly reward. And remember, he, in speaking about fasting, said in verse 18 that we should fast in a way not to appear to men to be fasting, but to your father, he says, who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then I pointed out last week, I think he's talking about heavenly rewards there and gave some reasons in the preceding context for that, but also in the following context, in the passage we're looking at today, in which our Lord Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, I do thank you for this time of year where we, where we remember your plan of redemption over the course of many, many years, hundreds of generations, you brought forth the promised seed who would deliver us from our sins, your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And we take time this time of year to glory in that, to praise you for that wonderful plan and how you brought it to pass after so long, after so many generations longed for it and we get to be among the generations who live the other side of his first coming. And we look forward to his second coming with the same kind of longing with which people like Simeon and Anna looked for the coming of Jesus in his first coming. And Lord, as we look forward to his second coming, we want to live lives that honor him, that bring glory to you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts today, that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding so that we might learn the lessons our dear Lord Jesus wishes us to learn from his words. Convict us, Lord, where we need it. Encourage us where we need it. Help us to walk out of here feeling stronger, more able to face the lives that you've called us to live for Christ. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a professor of economics at George Mason University some years back. Uh, Walter E. Williams is his name. He wrote, what's the noblest of human motivations? Some might be tempted to answer charity, love of one's neighbor, 
or, in modern politically correct language, giving something back or feeling another's pain. In my book, these are indeed noble motivations, he writes, but they pale in comparison to a much more potent motivation for human action. For me, the noblest of human motivations, he says, is greed. I don't mean theft, fraud, tricks, or misrepresentation. By greed, I mean being only or mostly concerned about getting the most one can for oneself and not necessarily concerned about the welfare of others. Social consternation might cause one to cringe at the suggestion that greed might possibly be seen as a noble motivation. Enlightened self-interest might be a preferable term. But I prefer greed since it is far more descriptive and less likely to be confused with other human motives. This guy was not, a, or is not apparently a Christian. <laughs> uh, if he is, he's an incredibly confused one. But Professor Williams illustrates just the kind of warped thinking that affects so many in our culture who aspire to what is often called the American dream. It's just this kind of thinking that was around in the first century. It's always been around. And it's the kind of thinking that our Lord Jesus is challenging in the passage before us this morning. He, he leads us to think hard about the kind of treasure we're actually seeking in this life. And he challenges us to think about the kind of treasure we ought to be seeking instead. So, in order to understand what kind of treasure Jesus says that we should and should not seek, as we examine the passage this morning, we're going to consider it under three main headings. First, we're going to talk about what Jesus is not prohibiting. Then we're going to talk about what he is prohibiting. And then we're going to talk about what he's promoting. So first of all, what Jesus is not prohibiting, because we can misunderstand this maybe when we first read verse 19, which says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, when our Lord Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, I would argue that he is definitely not forbidding the kind of planning and storing up of goods either commended or required in other passages of Scripture. He knows the Bible, and he's not trying to say something inconsistent with it and this, what the scriptures teach elsewhere. Uh, for example, uh, we're, we're encouraged to plan and work for the future needs of ourselves and our family in scripture. As Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Now, obviously, um, here Solomon is talking to the person who's lazy and doesn't want to work hard. Right? He says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, we read this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the context, Paul is speaking especially of older widows, and this clearly meant that some financial planning was involved. They had to prepare to meet the needs of people who were going to have them. They had to be laying aside some money 
at some point to do that, one could argue. Later in 1 Timothy 6.17, the Apostle Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, we're going to consider later the best way to enjoy the riches that God may have given us. But Paul doesn't see being rich when we're talking to rich people. And actually, if Paul were here, he would be talking to all of us. He would consider all of us rich by the standards of the first century and by the standards of a great portion of the world today. There's probably not a poor person in this room. But um, Paul doesn't think it's sinful to be rich. In fact, God would have us enjoy the riches as a blessing from him. Again, we'll talk about how a Christian would enjoy the riches. But having more than what you need is what being rich is. And having plenty more than what you need biblically speaking, is what being rich is. And Paul sees nothing wrong with that, so long as we don't trust in those riches instead of God. And so long as we enjoy them as he wants us to. So we may be sure that Jesus doesn't frown on planning or setting aside some money for the future or having more maybe than what we need currently uh, to provide for our families in the future to properly take care of them. Rather, he must be warning us not to trust in such planning or money, which is the point that Paul makes, right? He doesn't want us to trust in those things. He doesn't want us to value those things more than we should. He doesn't want those things to become idols in our lives, as we'll see. And that becomes more clear when we consider our next point, and that is what Jesus is prohibiting. observe that Jesus clearly says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That for yourselves is pretty important praise. What he is prohibiting then is not the wise setting aside of goods to meet one's needs or the needs of one's household down the line, but the selfish desire to have more than what one needs for any of those purposes. This point is further emphasized by his use of the Greek word thesaros, which is translated treasures here in the New King James Version. And interestingly, it is the same word Matthew used earlier in the gospel to describe the gifts brought to Jesus by the Magi. In Matthew 2.11, we read this, and when they come into the house, they saw, and these are the, these are the wise men, when they come into the house, they saw the young man, or the young child rather, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him, And when they had opened their treasures, that's the word, thesaurus, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three of the most valuable things on earth at the time, right? This is also the word that Jesus himself later used in one of his kingdom parables in order to emphasize the great value of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Because what's in that field is more valuable to him than all that he has. 
So when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth, the very word he uses to describe those treasures tells us that he's not talking about seeking just to provide for our needs, but rather to amass wealth that is way more than we need. In other words, that, that treasure has become more than just an ends to a godly means. It has become something much more to us than that. It's become an end in itself. It's become what we value most. When I store up things to take care of my family in the future, it's because I, I value God who's commanded me to take care of them, and I value them, not the stuff I'm saving up. That's an important distinction to keep in mind. Jesus doesn't want us to be selfish and greedy as the world is selfish and greedy. He would have chastised Walter Williams for his perspective, <laughs> I believe. However, Jesus not only emphasizes that such a focus on earthly wealth is selfish and greedy, but also that it is ultimately pointless. Since anything we can amass in this life on earth is vulnerable to loss. For this is, he says, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. People who really seek after money are always afraid of losing it somehow. <laughs> That's why they want more and more and more of it. As John Stott has written concerning this verse, the earthly treasure we covet, Jesus reminds us, grows rusty and moth-eaten and thieves break in and steal it. The Greek word for rust actually means eating. It could refer to the corrosion caused by rust, but equally to any devouring pest or vermin. Thus, in those days, moths would get into people's clothes, rats and mice eat the stored grain, worms take whatever they put under the ground, and thieves break into their homes and steal whatever they kept there. Nothing was safe in the ancient world. And for us moderns who try to protect our treasures by incesticides, rat poison, mousetraps, rust-proof paints, and burglar alarms, it disintegrates instead through inflation, some of us are experiencing that right now, and devaluation or an economic slump. Even if some of it lasts through this life, we can take none of it with us to the next. Job was right, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. To the words of Job, we could add the warning of the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Kent Hughes offers the following illustration to help drive home this point. He writes, an old miser called his doctor, lawyer, and minister to his deathbed. Now, for our young people here, a miser is someone who greedily saves lots and lots of money and doesn't want to share it with anybody. That's a miser, okay? So our kids can understand this. An old miser called his doctor, lawyer, and minister to his deathbed. They say you can't take it with you, the dying man said, but I'm going to try. I have three envelopes with $30,000 cash in each one. I want each of you to take an envelope, and as they lower my casket... Throw in the envelopes. Each man tossed in his envelope as requested. But on the way home, the minister confessed, I need the money for the church, so I took out $10,000 and threw only $20,000 into the grave. 
The doctor said, I too must confess, I'm building a clinic, so I took out $20,000 and threw, on, threw in only 10000 The lawyer said, gentlemen, I am ashamed of you. I threw in a personal check for the whole amount. <laughs> now, this humorous story illustrates well the point that both Job and Paul were making, namely that we can never take our earthly wealth with us when we die. In fact, Paul's discussion of this matter deserves to be considered more fully, so we're going to go back to 1 Timothy 6. And I'm going to read first verses 6 through 10. And he's warning Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, not to allow money to become a motive for what he does. <laughs> but service to the Lord, godliness should be what he's after. And so he says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, and that's the issue, the love of money. Remember before I said setting aside things because you love God and love, love your family and you want to take care of them as he has told you to is not the same thing as the love of money. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And later in verse 17, Paul continues, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, how does a rich person enjoy the wealth that he's been given? Paul doesn't just leave that hanging in the air. He goes on to say, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. See, if they're ready to give and willing to share, then they don't love their money more than they love God and his people. <laughs> That's the point. Storing up, he says, for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, remind them when they have such earthly rewards that the ultimate rewards are heavenly rewards like Jesus said. And that's what has to capture our heart. Love for, love for the things of God. He says you, you need to care about godliness, not earthliness. Right? In these last two verses that we just read, Paul emphasizes the very thing that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and that brings us to our final point here, what Jesus is promoting, what he's promoting. In verse 20 he says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, in what way do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? As, we, as we've seen, the Apostle Paul taught that we store up for ourselves for the time to come through serving the Lord faithfully and doing good to others. It's one of the ways we do it. But Paul wasn't the first to deal with this idea, of course, as we've been seeing. He got all this from Jesus. And it's already here in Jesus' teaching, these ideas. 
Notice in this regard that the treasures we lay up for ourselves in heaven are referred to by Jesus in the context of the Sermon on the Mount as a reward that we will receive. These treasures, these heavenly treasures are also called a reward. These are interchangeable ideas. He said back in chapter 5, verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad in that context if you're persecuted for him, for the sake of the kingdom. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You're storing up heavenly treasure when, when, when this happens. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 6, 4, one of the reasons he said not to do your charitable deeds to be seen by men, he says, do, it, do your charitable deed in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I think he has these heavenly treasures in mind that we're storing up, these rewards. Same thing about prayer, Matthew 6, 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then we see here in verse 16, which I read leading into verses 19 through 21, that we do not want to appear to men to be pasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This has been a theme. There are heavenly rewards that await us. And here I think Jesus is shifting to calling those rewards treasures. Because these rewards are far more valuable than any earthly treasures. See, these people who want to be seen by men, they think the honor of men is more valuable than heavenly reward and heavenly treasure. See, you can, you can seek earthly treasures that aren't just physical treasure. You can seek power, power and notoriety, <laughs> too. And in the context, that seemed to be driving these Pharisees more than earthly treasure, although they could be kind of greedy, too. And Jesus chastises them for that elsewhere. Now, Jesus does not specify the precise nature of the reward we will receive, and there's not much in the rest of Scripture on the matter either about what exactly these rewards are. We can surmise that maybe it's some special role in the new heavens and the new earth or something. I don't know. But Paul does, in a general way, uh, refer to future reward in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 through 15, to get a little more light on this issue of rewards. And he doesn't say precisely what they are, but he does indicate that they can be lost He says, beginning in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, and, and this is in the context of, remember, in Corinth, many people had come there. Paul had planted the church there originally, but other people, Peter had come through and preached, and Apollos had come through and preached, and there were factions starting amongst the people in the church at Corinth. And some of them were saying, I'm of Peter, and some of them were saying, I'm of Apollo, or I'm of Apollos. And then the ones who are trying to be more spiritual than the others saying, well, I'm of Christ. But Paul kind of chides them, too, for not really meaning that, just wanting to sound more spiritual. Because he, 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 he criticizes them as well as the rest. But um, that's what's going on here. And Paul's trying to give them a, a proper perspective of how to view these, the different roles than he and these other preachers, ministers have. And so he says, now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one 
will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. Peter or Apollos, right, or any other ministers. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. And here he's speaking of the day of the Lord in the future. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now here, he's talking about rewards in connection with ministry. Serving Christ in the church in a way that you seek to build up the church. And this applied in that context, especially to their leaders who are preaching the gospel, but it, it applies in general to everyone who's a member of the body of Christ, whose job it is to help to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. And he uses this figurative language. We can build appropriately, as one should build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, with precious stones. What would those precious stones be if you're building on the foundation, which is Christ? Well, all the various teachings of the Christian faith, for example, that we learn so much about and justification, propitiation, and sanctification. These would be some of those precious stones, the deity of Christ and all these doctrines that we understand, right? All these would be the precious stones that we would be building on. And perhaps even people that are being incorporated into the church would become part of the building because Paul uses the language that way elsewhere. But he says you can also build with wood, hay, and stubble. Watch out, purpose-driven church, (laughs) right? Watch out, secret church you can build with wood hay and stubble especially watch out you prosperity gospel heretics who talk so much about money because you love money right and you forget it's a root of all kinds of evil watch out you people if some of you are saved well you're going to have a lot of rewards lost Many of those people aren't saved. But a few of these seeker pastors, they, are, they know the Lord. And they're just confused. Some have never been properly trained to be pastors. My experience, as an aside here, there's a glut of men out there seeking to be pastors. But qualified pastors who know how to hand, rightly handle the word of God are few and far between. And I'm glad I serve with three other pastors here who are really qualified pastors. And we have one who's been visiting with us who's also called to be a pastor, and uh, he's also a qualified man. Many of you know Brett. He's going to fill in for me some when I can't preach. He's a qualified man. He knows how to, you've heard him preach. He handles the word right. He's building the right way. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to live up to what he says. But here's the thing. Paul's not saying you're going to go to hell if, you, if you're a bad servant. <laughs> that you're going to miss out on rewards you could have had and that God wants for you. And that can be applied to each and every one of us because every time we share the truth with someone else about any, in any way from Scripture, we're building. 
Every time we strengthen a believer in their faith from the scriptures, we're building. Every time we share the gospel with someone and they receive, we're a building. Every time we teach our children the things of God, we're a building. So again, Paul speaks of a reward for believers quite apart from the issue of their salvation, which is not in doubt, even if a believer may lose many rewards. And I think this is true of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Since throughout the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been referring to those who are already believers and thus already know God as their heavenly father. Remember, this is directed mainly at his disciples, even though the multitudes are listening in. For example, in the preceding context, he taught his listeners to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, he didn't mean those who weren't believers, whom he later called children of the devil. And he said, your father is the devil. John chapter 8, I believe. We've already seen the preceding verse that our Lord had just said, do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father is in the secret place. And your father, who sees in secret, rewards you openly. He's talking to people who are actually children of God and who are in the kingdom. And he's warning them about loss of rewards. And so we're not surprised that when we read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, that's the same mentality. You're saved, but you can still lose rewards. But there are many things which compete for the love of our Heavenly Father. Money can be one of them. And there are things which can distract us from the life we look forward to Him, uh, with Him, rather, in heaven. In eternity. Someone has once said, treasures in heaven are laid up, only as treasures on earth are laid down. And that's true whether it's money that's become too much of a treasure to us, or whether it's the honor of men. You've got to lay that down. You can't be like the scribes and Pharisees. You can't be like the hypocrites. You've got to lay that down to take up heavenly treasures. Can't hold both. You got to drop one to pick up the other. Whoever said treasures are laid up in uh, in heaven are laid up only as treasures on earth are laid down has begun to understand what Jesus says next. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't want us to kid ourselves by pretending that our hearts belong to God when we clearly treasure. Things other than him. We can't say that our heart belongs to God if we treasure other things more than we treasure him. We can't say that our heart is tied up with the kingdom of heaven and the advancement of the kingdom of heaven if we really care more about other things. Jesus wants us to remember that what has captured our hearts will always show in what we value most in this life. And it will be seen by where we place our priorities. So we have arrived at the question I think we should each ask ourselves this morning, and that is what kind of treasure do I seek? Do I seek after earthly things first and foremost? Or do I set my mind on things above and not on things in the earth? As Paul said in Colossians 3, 2. 
Some people think that's a bad idea. Have you ever heard the derogatory statement about a believer that he is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? I've heard that I don't know how many times over the years. Seems like mostly older saints have said that. That man is so heavenly minded he's no earthly good. And I think they mean he's just not very practical or something like that in doing ministry or something. I don't know what they mean. All I know is it's not true. The most heavenly minded people will always be the ones who do the most earthly good. Precisely because they are more interested in laying up treasure in heaven than on earth. And I would ask you to consider this morning that how tightly we hold on to earthly things often shows how loosely we're holding on to Christ. You can't hold tightly to earthly things and still hold tightly to Jesus. And he doesn't give you the option either. As we'll see later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a very clear point of saying you cannot serve both God and money. You have to pick one. We could say in the larger context, you can't serve both God and other people. You can't be more concerned with what other people think than what God thinks. You got to pick. And this is a good thing to remember these days because that's a thread running through here, remember. They desire to be seen by men, to be approved of men. And there are too many believers like that today. I'll give you an example or two before I close. Those who are promoting the idea of being a gay Christian. We're supposed to love people and accept them. So we'll just fudge on that. In order to what? Appear to be more loving. I saw an interview with Rob Bell, who's a heretical, I won't call him pastor because I don't think he qualifies, a heretic teacher. And, and he was saying things like, well, we've got to get, kind of get with the times. People don't believe this way anymore. And we're pushing people away from the church by taking a strong stand against homosexuality. He may as well just come out and say, I care more about what these people think than I care about what God says and thinks. Because that's the truth of the matter. And he's so blind, I doubt he can even see it. And there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. And he's probably one of them. I could name some more names. And I'm not one of those who's afraid to do that. Paul would name people like Alexander and Hymenaeus. And John would name Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among them. And we have men out there like that that should be named. We should be aware of them. There are all kinds of people out there professing to be ministers of the gospel who care mostly, if not completely, only about what others think than about what God thinks. And they will not take a firm stand on anything. They value earthly treasure, not heavenly treasure. And that's the long and the short of it. They're frauds. And we should be aware of them. So I guess I'll go on seeming unloving to the world around me when I try to lovingly correct them for these kinds of sins. And they'll hate me. 
and they'll despise me. And they'll be mad at me because I don't care what they think like they want me to care what they think. I care about them too much to let what they think drive me. And so should you. These are some of the ways we can apply in principle the kinds of teachings that we're hearing this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Holy Father, I hope that I've been able to make some good points and some applications for how we think about these issues. Lord, help us. Forgive us, I pray. We're in the areas in which we've been a little too wishy-washy or we've clung a little too tightly to some earthly things. There are some people in our church that are much more well-to-do than others, and, and we don't resent that, and we don't look down on that, and we don't think that they're failing to be uh, in the ways that Jesus talks about or Paul, because they love you more than they love the stuff you've given them, <laughs> and it shows in the way they live. And so we're thankful for that. But all of us can fall prey uh, to caring too much about earthly things. And so forgive us when we do, I pray, Lord. And encourage us. Encourage us as we leave here today to just strengthen our resolve to hold tightly to Jesus and let go. Let go or be willing to let go of, at least, so many of these worldly things around us. You don't call us to give away all that we have. We should at least be willing to, if you call us to. So help us to at least have that mindset, I pray. We'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention. Hope it was helpful to you.